violence against women in Africa came under the spotlight at a dialogue initiated by the World Bank. The aim of the gathering was to create much-needed awareness about women's rights issues in Africa. Uh, I'm not very sure if I should call myself a survivor because I still have memories of it. At times I dream of it. I'm still a victim and I'm st I relieve the, the moment every time I'm sitting in a combi. We continue to have these discussions about, you know, violence against women and children, but very prominently during this time, of course, are we winning this fight of South Africans against this terrible this scourge? Think tanks who discuss the issue of violence against women. Here we are still faced with more violence to this day against women and children. You know, this is a campaign that has been going on for years. Gender-based violence is not a new phenomenon in our societies, and yet we're seeing from the statistics that you have just read out now that the numbers are increasing. Thank you for joining us today on our audio journey through Africa. My name is Nangam Sokwinana and once again I'm delighted that you have tuned in. In our previous episodes we have visited South Africa and talked to Constitutional Court Judge Edwin Cameron. From there we moved on to Zimbabwe where we met Senator David Coltart and Dumisani Mulea, international award-winning investigative journalist. If you missed those episodes, listen in. You will find the link in this podcast show notes. Millions of girls around the world are denied their human rights, from the right to education, going to the right to live free from any violence. Every year, more than 12 million girls worldwide under the age of 18 are forced into marriages against their will. As you may have noticed, 16 days of activism for no violence against women and children starts today. We want to take this opportunity to dedicate today's podcast episode to women in Africa. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation has set itself the goal to strengthen women in sub-Saharan Africa. Not only in Africa, but especially here. The proportion of women in leading positions in business and politics is alarmingly low. Today, we find ourselves in East Africa, more precisely in Moshi, the Kilimanjaro region of Tanzania. I'm very pleased that Elizabeth Maro Minde is joining us today. She's a legal practitioner and an advocate of the High Court of Tanzania, as well as Managing Director of Kilimanjaro Women Information Exchange Community Organization, Kuyeko, in Tanzania. Elizabeth and her organization provide legal counseling to marginalized women in rural communities and represent them. For more than 30 years to date, Kuyeko has improved the living conditions of people in their area and the condition of human rights and gender. Through their programs, Kuyeko aims to reach as many marginalized people in need of their services as possible. Their vision is a society that takes responsibility to protect all people's equal rights. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being our guest today. Elizabeth, I was just telling the audience that we are now in Kilimanjaro area of Tanzania, which is the east of Africa. Could you kindly elaborate a little bit about Moshi in the Kilimanjaro region of Tanzania? Thank you. Moshi is a city on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro, 
which is also the regional headquarters for Kilimanjaro region. It's a region which is, um, uh, has two main tribes, the Chagas on the slopes of Mount Kili and Pares on the Pare Mountains as you go further east. There are also other tribes like Maasai and others who have settled in the region. As a region, we have about uh, a population of about uh, 1.6 million as per census of 2002. Certainly now we are more. And um, Kilimanjaro um, as an area, social, social services are fairly good as compared to other regions. Uh, if you are from Moshi area, especially, you find social services in terms of schools, in terms of uh, health services, water, they are, they are good. But as you go out deeper into the rural areas, some areas still have problems and we still have issues to deal with in terms of improving the social services. Politically, yes, it's one of those regions which is, I think I would describe it as a region which has been anti-establishment, if you like to look at that. For 25 years, Kilimanjaro, particularly Moshi Ruro, Moshi Aban, Rombo, Bunjo, these are areas which have been in the opposition. It is only this year's election that has seen uh, the, the ruling party uh, winning in this area, which is really something to deal with. I think it's very important. And generally, I would say by not being voting for the government which was in power also impacted on the services that would otherwise be directed to this area. Apart from that, I would say uh, it's an area which is highly patriarchal and people have been socialized in patriarchy for as long as they have been in this area. And this means men dominant, they take decisions, they belong to the leadership, they own resources as compared to women. So generally, if you are to look at the region as a whole, women are the poorest, despite the fact that uh, if you describe or you compare Kilimanjaro region with other regions in Tanzania, they always describe this area as highly developed. They don't need any more assistance. And this is because they are looking at a very small population. If you look in terms of economic activities, mostly women are in the small micro economies, 
you know, market people and they do a bit of farming and all those small, small things, which make them able to do, to do a lot of economic activities. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. I very much appreciate the introduction that you've shared with us. I think you've given us quite a lot of meat that we may unpack. What I'd like us to look at for our conversation today is particularly what you've highlighted to us, which is that gender equality still requires more work and more investment in the Moshi area. You've shared with us that there are various tribes that are found within Moshi. You've referred to um, those tribes as the Chagas, the Pares and the Messiahs. You've also informed us that roughly we are looking at the 2002 census, which indicated a population size of about 1.6 million. Now, for our listeners, that means that it is approximately almost 20 years since we last had a headcount of the population in the, in the Kilimanjaro region. And that headcount in 2002 indicated a population of 1.6 million. You've also indicated to us that the Moshi area is a highly patriarchal area, which probably speaks to why gender equality still requires more work and more investment. You've painted a picture that it is men who take decisions, it is men who own the resources, and it is the men who are mostly found in the leadership structures of the region. So this gives us an indication that the balance of representation, the balance of gender in how Moshi is to be developed and how Kilimanjaro is to be developed, it doesn't currently seem to be a picture that includes all the genders that are represented. I'm getting a feeling, and I'm not sure if this is the same feeling that the listeners are getting, but I'm getting a feeling that it is the men that are taking control of that development because they are the ones that are in the decision-making seats. Um, from your reflections, Elizabeth, what does it mean to be born and to grow up in the Moshi area as a woman? What would you say are the key highlights that you have observed in how women are born and raised within the Moshi area? I'm also born in this area. So what I'm saying is what I feel is the position. Um, in terms of growing up in Kilimanjaro, I feel that I'm still discriminated. I feel that it is a struggle we need to put up to ensure that uh, we, are, we are taken as equal human beings. So I would say being born here is something of struggle. We do not have equal rights as we should, in other words. And could you reflect for us, uh, how do you deal with those reflections that you've shared with us through Kuyeko? What kind of problems do you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? And how do you go ahead to support the women within the Moshi area and also the greater Kilimanjaro region? Thank you. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis in our organization, we have a the role to empower women to understand the whole concept of gender. You know, when you have been socialized in patriarchy, 
you kind of also believe that's the way of life. And uh, unfortunately for us as women, we are the teachers, eh? the teachers and professors of patriarchy because we, bring, we raise the children and we put into their heads who is more important, who should get what and what, who should do what. That is the role which women are playing in the society on daily basis. So when you have grown from such a situation, for us at Kuyeko, we have that big role to educate a woman, to empower her, to make her understand why she has to change. Because unless she changes her syllabus of bringing up her children, we are never going to change this society because we'll continue to tell our children men are more important, they are more intelligent, they, are, they should own all resources, they should do. And you know, to sustain patriarchy is also, uh, it comes along with also violence alongside with it when you are not behaving or when somebody wants to feel more important. A lot of violence is also it. So we, we, we have to educate. So education, you know, creating awareness and not only to women, but to community as a whole. You can't change society by just having women alone. So we need to change the mindset of both men and women. We need to deal with the youth so that they grow up with a different outlook into who is a woman and who is a man and what is our role in society. And that when you do some of the things, you don't change from being a man to a woman or a woman to be a man. It's just to educate people how to relate to each other on equal basis. So that's one major activity we do. The other activity that we do is to educate women about rights, the concept of rights in terms of, A, we have statutory law and we also have customary law and practice. Customary law and practice is unwritten. This is the practice, the laws that are passed on from one generation to the other that this is how our grandparents did and therefore we should do it, you know? So the purpose of going through such an exercise is A, to, to make them see the difference, see how culture also has a role of discriminating women. Some aspects of it are not that good. And also to tell women that there is statutory law which gives us an option, a different window to go and seek for rights. And uh, in that process, we find that uh, we have to do also, because once you educate the women, now they come with problems. And this is why we started counseling, legal counseling. And you have one-to-one session with the client with their problem, and we look at that problem like, oh, I'm not allowed to, to remain at uh, my husband's homestead because I didn't give birth to, to sons, you know? Because according to culture, land belongs to men. And therefore, if a man dies, inheritance is through the male issue. 
Even the statutory law has developed a little bit in that according to, say, law of marriage, women are also allowed to own property. Women are recognized as co-owners of matrimonial property. So it has, that means even if a person dies, my right does not die with him. But you need to fight for that right because in the current laws, there's no harmony also in the laws. What is said in the Marriage Act is not in the inheritance laws. And nobody brings the inheritance laws to interpret, uh, to, to see that the women have rights. So through awareness, through dealing with uh, case to case, we realize how big that problem is. And it also helps us to get issues for lobbying for changes. Because it's one thing said in the law, it's another thing getting that right. Because to get a right, you have to go to court. And women traditionally have not been brought up to go and fight rights in courts. So that in itself creates a lot of conflicts in the community when we have to tell women you have to go to court to get your rights. And when they go to court, they don't even get a person to come and give evidence in support of what the women are fighting for. This is because what you are fighting for, you are fighting against the community. And this is a big challenge which we still have to face. We do a lot of... Um, a lot of issues around land, it's one of the main problems in this area. There are many cases of land issues. We deal also with matrimonial issues. We also look at, uh, as I said before, inheritance issues. They are becoming a big issue. And for this year, for instance, uh, the ministry, uh, through what we have uh, a program on yearly basis for rendering legal aid to general public and the ministry gives a program for a whole week. We have to do a lot of awareness, a lot of assistance to poor people on inheritance issues. The government kind of recognized that the issues around inheritance are becoming too many. They are also recognizing the fact that uh, cases of inheritance are taking very long in the courts. And even the judiciary has said that uh, ah, even if it means doing court work on Saturdays, let the courts deal with the inheritance cases on Saturdays and make sure that they reduce the burden. So that just explains the level we have reached in creating awareness and making women now going to court to fight for their rights and making the courts, you know, be overburdened with the cases. And they, you know, there is that uh, difficulty and of saying what rights, what do we give the women? Uh, what share do they have? Interpretation of the sections. Uh, of the laws which sometimes are not there. So that's another area which is becoming very, very important to us. Issues of violence, my goodness. Those have been on and they continue to be there. 
as the more women claim their rights, they are also increasing the number of violence within families, uh, within communities, just to try and silence women and so on. You find that uh, there's a lot of publicity currently, and this is a good sign because in the past, women used to keep quiet about what is happening in their homes. But right now, a lot is coming out, and we are happy that uh, they are coming out. Uh, we are not happy because women have been, uh, been beaten, there have been uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of harm is done to them, some of them are dying. But the fact that it is now getting uh, attention and uh, the government is putting systems in place to handle, to handle such issues uh, is something which is very good and we should continue to, to make noise, to raise voices of women in order to unearth what has not been there before. Kuyeko is certainly doing amazing work. And thank you so much to you and your team, Elizabeth. Uh, just to recap for our listeners, you've you've shared with us quite a number of key and valuable insights. One that stood out for me is that you mentioned that through your programs, you are engaging both men and women and that you are encouraging both men and women to relate to each other as humans. And one of the things that you've shared with us is that uh, it is through the programs and through the work that Kuyeko is executing in the Moshi area and in the greater Kilimanjaro region that you are encouraging unlearning the social construct that seems to be a hindrance and seems to be a barrier. And you are giving room to develop mental lessons, both to our men and our women. And one of the things that you also mentioned is that with this in mind, you are looking at investing not only for the women that are living in present day, but you are also looking at the future generations that will be born, which I think is very valuable in the work that you are doing with your team at Echo, and thank you very much for that. Now, there's a subject that you touched on, which I'd like us to return to. One of the things that you mentioned is that as a woman growing up in the Moshi area, you felt discriminated, which I am reading in between the lines that it is probably why you reached into the kind of sector that you are working in, which is a sector that touches both on the legal aspect and also a sector that looks at empowering women. Could you please uh, dive into female genital mutilation? Is this still practiced in East Africa? And in particularly, is it still practiced in the Moshi area? Um, thank you. That's a good question. Uh, female genital mutilation is now dying slowly in this area. And this is because of the awareness that has been going on. Uh, we still have uh, some pockets where it is still being practiced. This is particularly so for the Maasai communities within the region. 
Maasai communities still embrace that practice. And uh, it gives us a lot of challenges because the Maasai community itself is a highly patriarchal society. It's highly uh, organized. It's, it has a social system which is closely knit that the authority comes from parents. And, and then when we talk of parents, we are talking of men. The women just take orders. And when they decide and they do these things seasonally, there's a season for female genital mutilation. And once they do that, uh, of course, uh, because of the awareness, some, some of the girls are running away from home when they realize we are about to reach that season. And when they run away, where do they go? So we have organizations that are trying to receive them uh, and trying to support them so that uh, they are not mutilated. And this is why you find that there are even special schools where they go and when they are there, they will remain there until they finish all levels when they are able to, to, to be able to fight for, their, for themselves. And thank you once again for the work that you continue doing in Tanzania. Um, I'm happy to note that you've shared with us that positively you are sharing with us that you, you, you've noted that female genital mutilation through the interventions that you have been leading in the communities of Tanzania and in particularly in the Moshi area and in particularly in the greater Kilimanjaro region, it is noted that the practice is slowly dying out which definitely is a positive take home from our engagement today regarding that subject of female genital mutilation. Um, there is something that I'd also like to go back to. Um, you mentioned to us that inheritance is through the male child. And somewhat when you were sharing with us uh, during that period, it, it, it came across that the value of women that are giving birth to girls is somewhat considered to be inferior, which then leads me to my next uh, subject, which uh, is that, is it that we are noticing that the African women continue being discriminated against and this discrimination continues to escalate the disadvantage of women. Um, and leading from that question, I'd also like to find out regarding the laws and the structures which still make it difficult for women to access the economic resources, acquire property, land, and also continue enjoying their rights. In, in, in your observation, would you say that it is about to improve? If not, what else may be done in terms of the law to strengthen those rights that are available for all humans, but most particularly for women? And also, what role does the law passed in 1999 on land policy play in strengthening those rights that women have been uh, basically allocated? Let me start by saying that, uh, A, inheritance laws. I'm saying laws because we don't have one single law for inheritance. 
you have the customary law. And when you talk of customary law, you are talking of laws based on tribal basis. The Chagas have their own stories. The Paris have their own stories. The Maasai have their own stories and many other tribes in Tanzania also. And uh, that in itself is a problem in our modern society because the customary law assumed that people are going to marry within their own tribe. Yeah? If I'm a Chaga marrying a Chaga, then we belong to the same customary law. It makes sense. But people are marrying from all directions, not only from south of Tanzania, central, east, where, beyond, go to South Africa, China, Europe, and elsewhere. So when you have such marriages, and people are moving more in urban centers, they go living, say, I'm from Moshi, I marry somebody, we are in Dar es Salaam. We, we bring up our family in Dar es Salaam. My husband maybe is not a chaga. What happens when he dies? Which, which culture will dominate? And these cultures are not necessarily the same, much as they are patriarchal, some are matrilineal, some are. They have different outlooks into all the issues of resources, yeah? So that is one of the major problems that we are having, interpretation of which culture. Okay, the, the courts have tried to say that, okay, we'll follow the, what the, the wishes of the deceased. Who knows what are the wishes? When people are in Dar es Salaam, in Mtwara, all over, uh, who goes to interpret their wishes? And uh, the, 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 the law also says, okay, we look into the, you know, the lifestyle, you know, what, what do they really want? But you will find tribes like the Chagas and Paris. A person dies in Mtwara or any other city, they will transport the body and bring it to Moshi for burial. When they bring a body to Moshi for burial, Nobody, the, the people in Moshi do not even ask those questions which are asked in court. They just know this is our son, this is our procedure, and they go on like that. And this is why inheritance issues are becoming very, very problematic. So that's one, culture. We also have uh, religions like Muslims. According to the Muslim community, they have the Quran, and the Quran also has a chapter about how they handle those inheritance issues. And the way they handle them is not the way the culture, you know, uh, or the statutory law which exists uh, describes. So the problem that happens here is, if you are a Christian, you have married a Muslim and somebody dies, eh, which law is applied? For the Muslim, they will say, uh -uh. No, the property of a Muslim cannot be inherited by a Kafir. A Kafir is somebody who is not a Muslim. But then we say, okay, if that is the position, me as a legal wife, according to marriage law, I'm entitled to what we have jointly acquired. So if one is gone, then give me my portion and then the rest you can deal with it in your own way, according to the to the Muslim law, no solutions have been found. Yeah? 
We still have problems, big ones. Now we have another law, a statutory law. Initially, that law was not intended for Africans. It was a law which was imported from India in 1800s, and that law was intended for foreigners in this country. And that law also, with its development, they assumed that if an African becomes a Christian, maybe you are entitled to use that law. But, you know, development of mixing an African with the foreign law and what, it never really went as far as that because people continued to be buried in their homelands and the, the traditions continued to be applied. It only becomes necessary to use the statutory law when you go to court. I mean, there's no confirmed position and this is why we have a lot of problems. And I would also observe that uh, there has been, there have been uh, no political will, I would say, in my view, to have a, a unified law of inheritance, which would recognize all these differences and gaps that we see in the different laws. And we still need to do a lot of lobbying and advocacy around those issues because of what we are seeing today. The laws that were passed in 1999, would you, in your assessment, would you say that those laws have assisted and supported the equality of the ownership of land? Um, it's true in 1999, the government passed a law, land law and policy, and the purpose was to ensure equality Issues are mentioned among other things and to allow um, compensation in case land is taken away. Now, in, in my own assessment, on the one hand, it, it has given uh, women more rights to claim the land on the basis of the law. But on the other hand, it has also... Um, uh, it has also been able to help women protect their interests in the land. Because, mind you, women are mostly working in the land. Women, they do a lot to develop the land which the men are owning. And the man has a right to sell, to mortgage, to do what? But through that land law, you can... You can, you can refuse land being mortgaged because if it doesn't, you know, spousal consent is important for any transfer. And, you know, that has compelled men to begin talking to women about such resources, which fact was not the case before. So on that score, I would say it has enhanced our position in making men realize that we are an important factor in deciding on land issues. But we still 
uh, far away from really owning land. And when I'm saying owning land, I'm not referring to urban areas where you can write a letter, apply to be allocated land. I'm talking about the bigger area, which is the rural, rural areas of Kilimanjaro, where land is unregistered, where land is still under customary law, and where the majority of women are living, they still don't have access to that right. Thank you so much for sharing those insights with us, Elizabeth. Um, unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our dialogue, um, but there are still two last questions that I'd like to that I'd like to propose to you. As the managing director of Quieco, and with your years of experience, in your opinion, which developments should we reinforce? And this reinforcement is particularly looking at those development reinforcements that may be beneficial to those future generations that you mentioned earlier when you were telling us that you are working with both the men and the women. What developmental uh, reinforcement is necessary to benefit the future generations? For my view, I feel that uh, the economic empowerment is one of the things that is making a woman very weak, not even able to sustain a legal battle because of her poverty, because of her dependency. So if there is one area that I would want to see, I would want to support economic empowerment, particularly for women, in order to enhance their position to be able, A, to protect families, because women are really the ones who are carrying the burden of the family, but two, uh, to be able to help women sustain a legal battle because you cannot tell a woman to go to court when she doesn't have a bus fare, when she doesn't have food in the house. So we need to improve the food security at the family level. And in so doing, it will, we shall be able to, to, to enforce the legal rights that we are talking about. Because legal rights, you know, you cannot sustain them. You need to, 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 to be confident, you need to be safe, you need to know that your family has a meal to be able to even come for a seminar to listen to you. So those are issues for me, I feel they're very important. Thank you, Elizabeth. And lastly, to all the girls, to all the women that are listening to this conversation that we are having today, what advice would you give them? To all the women and all the, the human beings, I would say, um, I would say, um, one, we need to accept a fact that we are all human beings. And we are entitled to the basic rights that are there in this world. We need to live, we need to have resources, we need to be comfortable, we need to be free of violence. And this we can only do when we respect each other. 
you know, unless we respect each other as human beings uh, who uh, have equal rights, we, we cannot move. And uh, I'm saying that the world is changing. Uh, I will just urge both men and women to respect each other first, but two, to realize that uh, it is a struggle that we have to put. Women are not just fighting for the sake of it because they want to take over the position of men. Women are doing that because they are realizing they are human beings and the treatment is not fair. And also I'm urging women to change their syllabus of bringing up their children and uh, dividing uh, roles among them which enhance gender inequality. They should realize that we need to bring children who respect each other from childhood. And if they grow that way, then we are going to have a society that is changed, that has respect for each other, that will realize that some of the things that are happening today ought not to happen if people knew the impact. Absolutely empowering insights that you've shared with us today, Elizabeth. I've got three that I've picked up. One, we are all humans and are entitled to the rights extended to all of us as human beings. Two, let us all respect each other as human beings. And three, women are advocating for fairness. Absolutely great yes. insights that you've shared with us. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's been absolutely great engaging you this afternoon. And I hope that you continue having the strength, having the wisdom to continue the valuable work that you are doing in Tanzania. I do believe that not only will it be beneficial to Tanzanians, but also it will be beneficial to Africa as a whole. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mama. This was the third episode of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. If you enjoyed the podcast, join us for our next episode. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Saharan Africa is an independent German organization that is committed to promote liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitalization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, as well as LGBTQI rights, and engages against violence against women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply search for Freedom Foundation Africa.